One smoke, broken, the hero. What is the miasma, and what is its relationship to the Fay and Hobbes? That question has been the pretense by which the Church has sanctioned my research into transmogrification thus far. However, it has revealed itself as a riddle without an answer. There is no connection, at least none that the Union would want. Fay trapped in human captivity sufficient as to prevent free movement begin the transmogrification process overnight. Likewise, we know from Union missionary reports that the reverse is true for men captured by fairies. In either case, the final products are gremlins and elves, respectively. Neither produce nor survive the miasma. Only the Hobbes possess such attractions and affinities, just as they are the only race who transmogrify humans into more of their own kind by ritual or kidnapping, or by spontaneous transformation in certain humans, though it is blasphemy to say it, as it is likewise forbidden to notice that Hob generation of miasma stops with the cessation of their cannibalism. From Nastius's research notes on Fay, Hobbes, humans, and the miasma. Long ago, bellows broken as sonorous as a little girl's voice can go, our hero Gerard rode astride his white pony Osem to the northern ridgelands of the evil King Ogier. He rode to free his people, the Sealanders, from the grip of that once-loved tyrant, now corrupt, cursed by the eye of the enigmatic spirit Amgine discovered within the depths of the mines beneath his mountain keep. And so, she pauses, leaping out of her stool and onto the table to the cheer of the drunken coal miners. Maddock groans from behind the bar, but he lets it go on. It's what his customers want, after all, and it's not as if an actual bard ever visited Village South. Broken continues. Gerard, with the famous dragon lance in hand and leaned against his shoulder, traversed the fey-ridden floodplains, the serpentine river, the swamplands fed by winding brooks, the shadowy forests, then the ridges themselves with their treacherous switchbacks, crumbly cliffs and sheer ascents, and at every step he faced all manners of magic that sought nothing else but to bar his way. First, it was gravel-skinned hill trolls that played their cruel games. By day they hid as stones in the soil, jagged boulders to break Osem's eight hooves. These our hero avoided, for his vision was keen as his lance's hewing head, and he could see the false boulders tremble at the sunlight reflected off the mythic steel. But by night the trolls came alive in their true manifestation. Their arms, thick and hard and strong as stone, erupted from the earth and buried Gerard, horse and all, up to their necks in soil. And surely those trolls would have smothered them both had not the dawn returned and turned those fey spirits into stone. Oh, good son, you rescued us not once but twice. Is it too much to ask for your help a third time? Begged the desperate hero. But the answer he received came not from the sun, but from a bowed-back farm woman, wrinkled and toothless, hideous as a hob herself. I can dig you out, she told Gerard, grinning below a hooked nose, if only it will please you to grant me a kiss. The whole of the Hellgate's inn and wine tap explodes with jeering as if the miners really think the folklore hero can hear their shouts. Don't do it, Jerry. We got Burroughton brothels coming to south. Just hold out a little longer. Yeah, hinges creak beneath the commotion, and a group whose cadence I don't recognize strolls on soft soles into the common room. Maddock yells that story time is over with, 
to quiet down so he can address the new patrons. But they don't seem interested in room or food or barley wine. Instead, they march, the four or five of them directly toward me at my upturned barrel. Before I know what's happening, they've got me cornered while their leader speaks, a woman, her tone airy and carrying an authority about as flimsy as one who's had too many crown caps. We, the chosen children, have traveled far from home to this wild northern land of fairies and hobs in search of a man who they tell is a true pyromancer. Kanti, they say his name is, the Lord of the Black Flame. Rumors tell that he frequents this establishment, hence why we've come. We seek an audience with him. Pray, are you perhaps his apprentice? Could it be possible that you arrange for our grace in his presence? Fools! Begins broken before I have time to gauge what's going on. Still standing astride the miner's table, she bellows, Arrogant and insolent, who are you to speak so surely yet so wrongly in the face of the Lord of Fear? At that, the woman's voice takes on a different approach, still airy yet poison like the miasmatic mist. We, child, are the holders of the keys of all otherworldly doors, selected by the circle of nine in the dark of night of the new moon. We are vessels for truth, and it is truth we receive into us through the mysteries despite many choosing to persecute us and claim our miraculous knowledge to be lies. Who are we, you ask us, child? But who could we be but the marigold mystics? Should it not be you to answer us? Me. She says, her small voice carrying the volume of the common room so quiet I can hear their hearts beat hard, brokens in the mystics. The girl inhales through her nostrils, holds it for a moment like a salamander does flame, then releases it again. I am the seer of fear, eyes of the Lord like those of Amgine which have and shall witness the wrath due upon you and the rest of the world. The room goes silent, and for several seconds it stays that way. The weight of her words weighing on the miners, the mystics, Maddock, and myself most of all. I'm cast back to the dawn of the Hobbs outside the gates of Marigold. My first real encounter with the spirit of vengeance, utterly unfamiliar despite years of contemplation. That morning made me realize just how powerless I really was. I really am a whelpling in the face of true terror. Without Grant's help, Broken would have died. And so would I had Nostius not slain the Hobbs. And now, listening to the girl repeat back to me what I've raved a thousand times, it rushes up from my gut like a sickness, this guilt and shame that I don't know what to do with. So I stand and speak to fill the silence. Your request for an audience is denied. I'm Canty, and I say leave us be. I'd like to finish my supper in peace. There's a clambering I assume is the mystic woman falling on her knees, bowing. The others follow her lead, repeating after her. Forgive us our ignorance, Lord of the Black Flame. Forgive us. We have come to learn from you the secrets of your magic. To become apprentices of your pyromantic arts. No, I cut her off. I'm not taking apprentices. If you want to learn magic, go talk to Nastius or Domnall at the Apothecary's Guild. Her voice turns poison again. Bah, the Guild are naught but over-venerated chemists and medicine men. No true wisdom lies with them. But we could show them, Lord, with your power their folly for doubting the mystic arts. With your might, we could turn the skeptics into true believers of the black fires that burned a greater hob into ash. Again, the witch shows her ignorance, shouts Broken. 
The mystic is about to respond in kind, but I interject. The girl is right. You lot are not but a bunch of self-aggrandizing imbeciles. It's disgusting. But Lord, silence, whelp, my seer hisses. Then there's a patter on the floor. More hissing. This time from the lit wicks of miniature satchel charges just large enough to make some sparks and noise. A few explode, startling the marigold idiots so they stumble over themselves in a scramble toward the bar. I make sure to follow on broken show of force. If you insist on learning the power of the black flame, then go ahead. Hang around south like a bunch of useless mouths, and I'll show you myself. Mercy, Lord Canty. Then go bother Domnall or the constable. And as they clamber out the door, Domnall or the constable, or else get out of town. Good riddance, I think, turning back to my supper only to find my eggs have gone cold. It puts a hole in my heart that after a long night's work, my solace can be spoiled by any idiot's interruption. But there's nothing to be done now, so I chew a soggy strip of bacon, listen to Broken return to her reading, and think, maybe this isn't so bad, as I shovel in a fork of cold eggs. Another pair of boots wraps the floor, familiar this time, heavy yet soft like well-worn leather. It's Maddock. I know before he ever opens his mouth, though I'm shocked he's actually come out from behind the counter. The man's not one to mingle with his customers, so when I realize it's me he's approaching, I assume it can only be to chide me about scorching the floor. Swallowing the last of my supper, I try a preemptive apology. I'm sorry for the damages. How much will they be to repair? What are you talking about? Aren't there scorch marks on the floor from the sparks? Maddox spits in the direction where the mystics had been. You think I came over here to complain about that? I suppose you would, trog eyes and all, but you're not going to dirty this place any more than it already is. He sits on the broken stool across from me, leans on his elbows and casts me in shadow, his breath reeking of fermented barley. I'm curious. You and that girl have been playing at being sorcerers for a year now. So it seems strange to me that when a gang of half-wits comes knocking wanting to be apprentices, that you'd turn them away. What does it matter to you, I say, taken aback by his sudden interest, unsure how to react or what his motives might be, though maybe I'm just embarrassed. For the truth is that if I did take them in, they'd see me for a fraud, then I would be less than them, less than half-wits. What does it matter to me, the innkeep repeats my question. Because our boy constable still owes me a large sum, and he's not going to be able to pay me back if we don't get a council up and running and ban Gaston from bringing in those damned gremlins. So, what does that have to do with me? Maddock lowers his voice. I saw what you did there. Sending the idiots off to Grant means they might set up shop here in town. And with the guild moved in, we've almost got all the people we need. Almost. I notice his choice of words, though his angle still eludes me. You want me to do something for you, right? Am I picking up on your meaning? He chuckles from his gut. You've really been shaping up, Canty. Enough that I think I'm ready to let you in on a little secret. His voice drops further, so quiet that I doubt human ears could hear. You know the story? The one about me getting lost in the mines and finding something down there in the dark? Well, it's true. And moreover, I'm willing to share it with you if it means Gaston won't find it, which they will if we let them bring in those abominations. What was it you found? I whisper, my skepticism battling the prospect of resolving South's greatest mystery. Of course he doesn't tell me. 
You'll see for yourself, if I've got your word, that is, that you won't share this information with anyone. Ever. It's gotta be just you and the girl. Skepticism 1. Fine, you have my word. It'll be just you, me, and Broken that know. But I have questions. I pause and listen to Maddock grumble, but he doesn't interrupt, so I press on. The rumors say you didn't just find something, they say you brought it back. He responds within a heartbeat, only part of it, and a small part that. I didn't even understand what I'd found until I carried it above ground. You'll understand what I mean when you see it yourself. Skepticism, too. Why me? Why not go get the thing yourself? With this old body, I'd be dead before I found it again. And besides that, Gaston's not going to let a stranger go spelunking through their tunnels. You mean you don't remember where it is? He chuckles. Remember, of course not. I was lost. It's a miracle that I made it out alive. But I can tell you this. Those tunnels are connected to natural caverns, and I mean the northern catacombs and beyond. You'll have to go deep, maybe even under the miasma itself. Too much for an old man like me, but I imagine it'll be easy for a trog. Skepticism 3. There's something he's not telling me, and I don't mean the mystery of what it was he found. There's a piece missing from his story, the reason he's waited decades to retrieve whatever it is that he believes is so valuable. I could ask, but he'll just lead me in circles, so I agree to his terms and tell him he'll see me in a few days. Then Broken and I go straight to the Guild Hall. The place is unrecognizable from when it was Bilar's home. The aroma of sage, ginger, lavender, and anise, and a dozen other herbs wafts steadily into the street as far as a hundred feet from the front door. And inside, the ring of glass flasks and porcelain mortars and pestles plays like music in contrast to the lifeless silence of what lingered here before. Yet still, I feel my nerves turn on edge as I cross the threshold. Sharp as a knife, I hear the clicking of the death wand, the pang as the hammer falls, the explosion echo off the walls of the catacombs, the spatter of inhuman blood on the basement stairs creaking with each step of Bilar's monster's descent. You aren't them, I recite in my mind. You're alive, and they're dead. Then I think of the Hobbs and of the Marigold Mystics. They aren't you. You've risen above them. I imagine each event as a single stone in a mountainous cairn, that each step on each stone has carried me higher than the last. I leave the past beneath me, yet still, it's dizzying thinking back. So much has changed so fast in Village South, in myself, in the girl. I thought we got my medicine yesterday, she says as we arrive at the hall, and for the first time I notice that her tone has gotten deeper, that the brim of her hat nearly brushes my shoulder where it hardly reached my elbow before. We're buying extra. I explain what Maddock told me at the hell gates of his treasure under the mountains of his inn's namesake. Broken asks me what we're after, what he's got hidden down there. I'm not sure is all I can answer without eyes to see the top of the cairn. We meet Nastius on the second floor where he shares a private laboratory with his master, Domnal, the one they call the Wizard, though both he and Nastius prefer to fashion themselves as alchemists. Though a handful of novices keep the standard herbal operation going downstairs, it's really just a source of funds that the journeyman and his master employ to continue their research on unlocking the secret of the Philosopher's Stone, whatever that is. Nastius tried to explain it, 
Something about the rotundum being transformed through dissolution and reconstitution of the component elements until they materialize the human soul. I have no clue what that means, though he did also show me how to transmute proxilic spirit with steam and coal in exchange that I share my findings about the occult. So far we've had little knowledge to trade. Broken and I agreed to start our experiments small as not to repeat Bilar's mistakes, but not one of the dozen rats we've resurrected hasn't changed into one of those abominations. Something is missing. The eye which seeth beneath the bottom of the ocean, mutters Master Domnall as we enter the lab upstairs. The eye which lieth beneath the bottom of the sea. Hearken, follows Nastius, thou higher than high and lower than low, spirit Enantiodromia. Inspire us with mercurial wisdom. Open the wellsprings, thou spirit Ouroboros, and let loose thy bedlams from the womb of earth and ocean. Warmth washes over the room as he utters, like bellows winds breathing fire into a forge. Then from behind, a chill steals in through my cloak and skin and flesh and bones. And before my eyes there appears an image, a pale figure engulfed in darkness. Thou spirit Amgin, beseeches Nastius, grant us vision to fathom thy world of obscurities, the enigma of prima materia becoming rotundum, the riddle capture of the Alcahest, the restoration of those pages lost of the furtive magnum opus. The room shudders, or perhaps I shudder within the room. As if to respond to that final incantation, a sudden chemical stench floods the laboratory, like the reaction of metals, acids, and salts. Something's wrong, Domnall shouts. Put an end to it, now, Nostius. The journeyman alchemist's feet clatter fast from one end of the hall to another, interspersed with the bang of windows thrown open, then finished with the slop of wet sand being dumped onto the floor to smother whatever reaction is smoking and crackling. The old man curses. Damn it, what happened? Our pronunciation was perfect, and those components should have been more than sufficient for transmuting base elements. Perhaps we're missing something, offers Nostius. Something to bind the spirits to this plane, or mayhap to trade for their borrowed power. It's the eye you're missing. Broken breaks into their conversation, quoting from her recent translations expanding on Vaughn Billar's work. Without the eyes of Amgine, man cannot discern his own soul from the chaos. He therefore becomes disoriented. Unable to orient, he cannot aim nor obtain upon his object, so instead he creates manifestations born of dark, despair, envy, and chaos. Ah, our transmogrified friend pays us a visit, announces Domnall, his usual greeting. Come to witness our experiment, have you? My apologies for not having more to show for it. I thought for a certainty we'd transmute the vessel this time, but there's something we're still missing. Bah, the mysteries of this science. The girl's blood boils, perfusing her skin and into her bandages till the very air around her swelters angry and humid. Neither alchemist seems to notice. Back so soon? Nastius asks. And I explain what happened at the Hellgates that Maddox shared his secret with us, and so Broken and I will be going on an expedition of our own. I ask if he'd like to come, but he says he can't leave his work at the Guild, though he's happy to offer whatever supplies we'll need. I put in an order for another week's worth of medicinal bandages as well as anything else he thinks might come in handy. Wait here, he says. 
I'll get the novices started on the girls' medicine, and you'll want chem lamps as well, and maybe the prototypes. Oh, and I've got something special for you. It's not quite finished, but it's better than nothing. Besides, this will make for a decent test. Something special? I ask. But he won't spoil the surprise, and instead plods down the stairs, shouting for a special batch of marigold salve. Now it's only me and Broken and the old man in the lab. He's staring this direction. I can tell because the girl shifts behind me. She doesn't like the way Domnall looks at her. The same way he looks at everything. Like a snake, she says. Seeing without worry or fear or despair despite the cloud of cataracts secluding his vision. So too does he speak with a tenor unconcerned with that of others or of his own effect. A spelunking under the miasmatic mountains, is it? I must say, I'm curious how the proximity of the curse might affect your physiognomy. Though you're not quite a hob, something closer to an elf, and they don't withstand the stuff any better than normal men. The Lord of Fear is human, Broken asserts, taking both me and the alchemist by surprise. If you knew anything about the soul, then you would know that. But you don't because your head is too full of your own notions to hear. Domnall chuckles. You've got quite the lively apprentice. A talker, that one. I don't think I could tolerate it myself, all that chatter. It's why the guild doesn't allow women. Too much talk and not enough work. That and the church doesn't like it, but I suppose we don't need to worry about them anymore. The irony of the situation does not escape me, nor does the disrespect. Strange, then, I say, that the guild let you in, isn't it? I don't think I've ever met a man longer-winded than his beard. Hmm? What's that? He grumbles. Bah, never mind, it's not important. Now where was I? Ah, yes. We were discussing the vessel for the Alkahest. Domnall is interrupted by Nostius plodding up the stairs. Come to our rescue, as he promised, with a crate full of chem lamps and the two prototype masks made to filter miasma. Only use these in an emergency. He warns us that the filters in the masks last no longer than an hour, at least until a superior material is discovered that can soak more miasma than granulated charcoal. We try them on, and the unlined leather hoods fit rough and front-heavy, their beaks protruding as far as my arms can reach. And that's for me. I'm sure Broken's mask nearly drags along the ground. For emergencies only, we agree wholeheartedly. Then Nostius rustles through his pocket and holds prone my open hand. Now here's that special thing I've been working on, only I want to check to see if it's safe. Tell me if you feel any pain. He places it onto my palm. It's cast metal, smooth, cold, and somehow hot all at the same time. I explore it with my fingertips. The shape's like a disc set flat atop a socket, but it's got a detailed form, like that of a serpent. What is it? I ask. It's supposed to be the base for a spearhead or glaive or partisan or something, but this is as much material as I've managed to transmute at once. It's an alloy of silver, iron, and wolfram, what I believe was once known as mithril, though I'm still working out the proportions. I figure you can mount it like a mace head at the end of a shaft, so at least you'll have an effective weapon if you run into fairies or hobs. Hopefully. Nostius's uncertainty doesn't do much for my confidence, but I thank him regardless. Something to fight with is better than nothing. And besides, I'm curious about its shape. It's the spirit Ouroboros, he describes, the world serpent from which all things are generated and to which all things return. Of the three superior spirits, it is the only to be given consistent symbolic form, 
Ironic if you think about it, though I recommend you don't. People who stare too long into the jaws of the Ouroboros tend to become monsters. Is that what happened to Bilar? I wonder once Broken's medicine is done and the girl and I are on our way out of the guild hall, through the market passing passers-by who I keep expecting to scowl and scoff something rude about us. Not one of them does. Not our whole way out the village. In fact, a few even salute us for our diplomacy in Marigold. You'd think that'd put my questions to rest, but as we wade through the forest for the Vault of the Black Flame, I find myself worrying. The ogre at Marigold, was he the same? And who will be next if Gaston brings in the gremlins? One of the miners for sure, but when and where? How many people will be killed before we can stop it? I feel a tug at my sleeve and instinctively retrieve a crown cap from my pocket. As I hand it to the girl, it hits me. The question, why not me? By all accounts, mine and Broken's, she and I are the most miserable things Village South has ever seen. The girl especially. I've never known someone to suffer so constantly and arbitrarily. Yet these last few weeks she seemed genuinely happy. I can't understand. And the only answers I received just now are the running of the river deep and the wind in the trees, and Broken calling me since I've stopped, lost in thought in the middle of the forest. Once we're back at the cove, sleep comes easily in the dark beneath Old Home, deep and dreamless, so that I awaken revivified despite the early winter sun still shining outside. It reminds me of that door we've been meaning to build. Normally, come the cold, I just retreat further into the vault. It's warm enough for me, and there haven't been predators to worry about in centuries. Or at least I wasn't aware of them. Now I am. And I'm tired of retreating. And I've already bought the tools and materials. The only thing missing, that's been missing for weeks, is the motivation. Somehow, I just haven't been able to convince myself to start on it despite all the times I've stubbed my toe or tripped coming in and out of the vault. Instead, I just curse myself, lazy trog. Useless. Incompetent. No, you're not! That's not you! I repeat in my mind the salutes we got in town and the reason for building the door in the first place. For broken. I crawl up from the bedding and lumber sleepily to the planks piled about the vault entrance. You're alive! That old self has died. I pick up a hammer, a handsaw, a board of treated wood, a box of nails, and start to work, feeling out the dimensions of the cave mouth, how far the lake deposits salt along the floor. You've risen above him, your former self. Engrossed in purpose, time seems to dissolve along with the outside world as I nail board to board along the long edge, feel that it's flush before checking the angle where it meets with the wall, and I've made a mistake. So take the plane and shape it again, then move on to the sliding door, the supports. Give them a shove when I'm done to be sure the wind won't knock this thing over. It holds, and for a moment I'm bold enough to grin at what I've accomplished. But only for a moment before a contrary thought steps in from the shadows to remind me that I'm only impressed because I can't see. If I could, I'd know it probably looks pathetic. That's all it takes to make you proud? Doing some stupid chores? Then how are you any better than the yokels in town? I guess I'm not any better, is the only answer I have for myself. Then the girl's voice echoes. She half yawns and half shouts. You finally did it, and it's finished already? That was fast. Yeah, 
I say, splintered and shameful and thankful for the dark, I stay facing the wall. There's the scratching of a striker. A lantern's warm light washes over the vault and I brace myself, yet still it catches me off guard, her long-drawn... Wow, now it's like we have a real home to come back to. They're the last words I'm expecting and they bring tears to my eyes that I wipe away as fast as I can manage. I need a distraction. Something to keep myself preoccupied so my only thrall doesn't see me in shambles, so I ask Broken to help with my staff. I don't want something so long if I have to fight in the mines, but the wood is thick, smooth ash, a perfect fit for the mithril macehead. Together, we cut it down to size and assemble the weapon, then whittle the remainder of wood into a girl-sized spear. Hopefully it won't be necessary. I tell her while we're supposed to be cleaning sawdust and loose nails, though she's off somewhere else slaying imaginary hobgoblins with her newly crafted toy. Eventually, the girl's influence gets to me. I pick up my mace and give it a few swings, for practice in case I need to use it, and accidentally whack a dent in my ramshackle project. The mace stays together, so too does the wall, and I utter aloud, pretending not to be embarrassed. That's good! as I hang the mace from a loop on my pack. Then we double-check the rations, medicines, chem lamps, and miasma masks. Between us, I carry the pickaxe and she the small shovel in a wheelbarrow that, if we're lucky, won't be necessary to bring Maddox's secret back from the mines. Breakfast is jerky on the march through the woods. Our route is northward, our destination, the catacombs under the crypt. If our source told true, they and the Gaston mining tunnels intersect somewhere under the miasmatic mountains. That's not a lot to go on, especially when my nerves are screaming over what occurred during our last delve, but we don't make it that far before the first obstacle emerges. A few hours in, near the edge of the northern forest, the air becomes thick, sour, and acrid. I don't notice until I cough and feel the stinging on my tongue and cheeks, the burning in my nostrils. Hold up, I command and swing my pack around. Broken asks me what's happening. I guess with the bandages on, she can't yet feel the poison gnawing. Looks like the Hellgates have opened, the real Hellgates. Put on your mask, I say, setting my headdress cautiously atop the tool-laden barrow and fitting the unlined leather over my face. She does the same with her hat and asks, But didn't Nastia say these only last an hour? What if it's inside the caves? How will we get out? All reasonable questions, all asking, should we turn back? I consider it and part of me agrees. The same part that doubts my ability. Tells me I'm weak and haunts me with the memories of every scary thing. Cannibal hobs, undead abominations, amputations, the villagers' disdain, building something ugly. To the girl and to that part of me I say, we'll find a way back so don't worry. She wrestles on her mask and gives a muffled, if you say so. I do. And I order she keep her eyes open for Hobbs while we wade through the fog. It feels like forever creeping over the short stretch of rolling hills between the crypt and the forest. My heart pumping hard as if I'm running. My body sweating despite the chill in the air. Silent as the vault until my seer stops and gasps, muffled by charcoal. Thank the spirits for that, because what she describes next, I can't help but imagine. There are shadows milling about the crypt entrance, things in the shape of men but thin and with malformed heads like those of dogs or jackals. 
Broken says she can't count how many there are. They're moving too quickly in and out from underground, but there must be at least twenty. Twenty, and the two of us out in the open, nothing but mist and dead grass between. There's no way we can run so weighed down with gear, and a fight would be suicide. But they haven't seen us yet. I think to use this to our advantage, to turn around before we're noticed and to return during the day. Not a chance. Before I can whisper a word, a series of chirps comes from the creatures blocking our way. They spotted us, the girl utters. One's coming over, should we run? I draw the mace from the leather loop on my pack, feel the sweat gather in the mask at the back of my neck. Just one? What are the others doing? Watching, she says. The dead grass crunches a dozen feet in front of us. I thrust the mithril mace head like a torch into the face of fear. Halt, I start, stumbling over what to say, or I'll whack you with my mace. No, no, that's lame. What about who dares approach the Lord of Fear? Something still not right. Then I remember the scattering of the mystics tripping over their terror at a few sparks and bangs. I steel myself, steal a step forward, and shout through the mask, or suffer the wrath of the Lord of Black Flame. The creature yips and leaps back from the noise, but only for a moment before resuming its movement forward, crunching grass on all fours, its snout sniffing, searching for our scent in the poisoned air. What it finds first is the transmuted alloy of the Ouroboros, then fire, so bright that even blind eyes can see the light, the white gold explosion. Then all goes dark, and the ghoul retreats, yipping, to the knoll where the others mill and howl about the crypt. I shout, Broken, show them fire like you did the mystics! But she's already ahead, scattering little hissing satchels on the ground around the entrance. They erupt at once, a blast loud as a death wand that routes the dog-faced hobs north into deeper fog. What were those things? she asks once we're well within the crypt, winding switchbacks toward the catacombs, masks safe to remove. Must be some kind of hob that we've never seen before. We'll have to ask Nostius and Domnall about them after we're done. I breathe deep the stale cavern air. It tastes sweet as victory. We'll have plenty to tell them too. The mithril worked, and they're afraid of fire, and they seem to come with the moving of the miasma. Or was it the miasma that came with them? Broken says nothing, at least not for the while we're walking and I'm talking up how awesome we are to fight off a pack of hobs. We're just like Gerard. I let her know that soon she'll be telling our own stories to the coal miners at the wine tap after work. Still the girl remains quiet. Not until we cross the threshold into the cold, deep catacombs does she respond. Conti? She asks, a question that echoes in the expanse of the dark, bounding from wall to wall till it dies in the distance. I wait a few steps before asking what's wrong. A few more footfalls wrap the cold stone floor. The wheelbarrow rattles, its rusted joints whinge. Why did you call yourself the Lord of Black Flame? You mean instead of the Lord of Fear? She responds. It's what that dumb mystic woman called you. Yeah, that's true, I say, stalling for time to think of why, but I've no idea, so I guess and say, it just sounded more intimidating is all. That was a lot of hobs, and I wasn't sure we'd be able to pull that off. I needed every advantage that we could get. The girl's quiet again for another few steps, then another few, then a dozen more before she finally asks, Are you going to be the Lord of Black Flame from now on? I don't know, I answer honestly. I haven't given it any thought. You don't like it? It's different, 
she starts. We pause our march and the whole of the catacombs goes unnaturally silent. Everything is so different than it was before. It's better though, isn't it? I mean, the villagers are nicer. And we get to have bacon way more often than before. That's good, isn't it? Not until after I utter the words do I hear how absurd they sound, but it's too late to take them back now. The girl is crying, and I feel like a fool for saying something so stupid. What should I do? I try and think of a way to apologize without making things worse. Of course, I don't go with a simple I'm sorry. That might actually work. Instead, I decide on, why don't you tell me what you don't like about what's different? There's silence for a while, so I try again with the same question. Still no reply, just tears and the occasional sniffle. And since I'm an idiot, and because it's just the two of us going nowhere in the cold and the dark a hundred feet below the surface, I try to ask her for a third time what's wrong. At last, she bursts out, and she jabs me in the belly with her finger. You, she says. We used to sleep all day and eat crown caps at night, go swimming in the river and spy on the villagers. Now all you want to do is work and study and study and work. And you don't even talk about revenge anymore. About how we were going to burn down south and then the big cities and then the world. You made friends and changed and left me behind. And now you're not even the Lord of Fear. I feel like my head might go the way of Vaughn Bellars. Left you behind? Broken, I don't... You could have told the mystics to get out of town, but you sent them to the guild instead. And now you're using their stupid name for you, even after I stood up to them. I bet you're going to let them join us when we get back. You'll go straight to the guild hall with all your new friends and... She sniffles while I stand like an idiot, agape. And pretty soon you'll like them all better, and you won't need me as your seer anymore. Broken, I'll be all alone again. I listen to the seconds tick by every third beat of her speeding heart, like that of a frightened rabbit, bleeding and breathless after an encounter with a hound. It was like that the day I found her, only the other way around. No one had chased the child while she stumbled through the woods. Her parents had long since abandoned her, the father dead from drinking himself into a stupor after the mother drowned herself for giving the cursed girl birth. That was a year ago, when she was living on scraps in town until their pity wore out and turned to fear. People got sick, like they do every turn of the seasons. But this time they had something the constable could point his death wand at. So like I said, she fled from south and into the forest where in the mind of a child predators lurk behind every branch. And like a child, she was careless and slipped into the river deep. Or so she told me. Though I don't believe it possible for someone with senses so keen. Regardless, that day the river delivered this girl to me at the vault of the black flame and I gave her a new home and a new name and myself that stupid title, the Lord of Fear. If only the girl realized how lowly and alone I was back then. Or maybe she did, and that is what this whole thing is about. It clicks together in my head like the lock on a death wand. Listen to me, Broken. I know things are changing a lot, that I'm not the exact same person that I was when we made our pact, but you need to see that you're changing a lot too, that we're changing together, and that things are better than they ever used to be. It's called growing up. It's something I should have done a long time ago, and what you should be doing now. Because when you're grown up, no one can abandon you, because you'll be your own person and not belong to somebody else. 
But what if I don't want to be my own person? Broken continues to fret. I kneel and pat her on the head through her oversized hat. Don't worry. You won't become one until you're ready, and even then, it will be by your own decision. Once you realize how much you've outgrown this useless trog. All right, she says, still sniffling some, but at least we're able to resume our march through the catacombs, feeling our way with the wall and with the butt of broken spear. Then, an hour in, she sighs and says, You're right, Lord of the Black Flame does sound scarier. That's all for our discussions the first day of travel. We make camp underground out of blankets and jerky and fall asleep on hard ground, not unlike that of the vault. No dreams that first sleep, just a disorienting wake. Then it's marching again and speculation just as to what Maddock found so deep under the mountains. Broken is convinced it was the sword of old King Ogier, buried beneath the ruins of his ancient keep. I have doubts about that theory, to say the least. It seems more likely to me that he found some kind of hob or fairy and formed a covenant, though what someone like Maddock would have to offer in such a bargain is beyond me. And what would such a being offer him? I recall the marigold goblin and ogre and the ghouls outside and decide that if I'm right, that we might have to pass on our share of the reward. Fortunately, the further we delve, the less and less likely my concerns become. We're three days into the winding natural caverns and have since intersected with the Gaston mining tunnels. These seem, as far as we can tell, to have been long abandoned given the odor of wood-rotted support beams and corroded metal tools. Other than those decaying human artifacts, there's been not a single sign of life besides our own. Not until late that third day, when the tunnel suddenly terminates in a pass so tight we'd have to crawl, feed our packs through, and leave our wheelbarrow and tools behind. What should we do? Asks broken with pain in her question, afraid of the answer she knows is inevitable. We're going to have to dig this bastard wider. I groan in equal dismay. We're both exhausted. Our feet are sore and blistered, and our legs are aching after days of constant labor lugging our gear in the heat of the deep. If it was just me, I'd ditch the barrow and continue. But if we do encounter hobs or fairies further along, It'd be suicide to leave our escape route a bottleneck. So I ready the pickaxe, and Broken takes up the shovel. About an hour in, we decide that's enough for the night. Day? I've no clue as to the time. And prepare to make our pseudo-camp on the rough-hewn floor, when a yipping echoes the length of the tunnel. Ghouls. I recognize them by their sound alone, though how many and how far is impossible to discern from the subterranean reverberation. But it's not just the yipping. I can smell them as well. No, not them. This is the bite of the miasma, and in such a stagnant and confined space, its acrid nature causes my eyes and nose and throat to sting. The girl starts coughing, and I realize that our conversations, our carving out of the terminal pass, and her hacking would make for easy tracking for creatures presumably as keen as hounds. Though right now, even if they never find us, the miasma will prove deadly enough. In a rush to fit our masks and tuck through the pass, we abandon the wheelbarrow, the shovel and pickaxe, and woefully my headdress, though I make sure to snatch up Broken's hat. It's bad enough for me to lose one of my few remaining links to the clan of the Antler. I don't want the girl to lose a link to me. So we're through, 
Me, broken, two packs. Her magician's hat stretched over her mask, the dog-like yipping of the ghoulish hobs, and the creeping fog of the concentrated miasma. We need to move fast. The masks have already been used several minutes in open air, and down here, who knows how long they'll last. So I order Broken to crack a chem lamp, to tell me what she sees, and to lead the way till we're safely out of the fog. For a while it's nothing but thick purple mist, long skinny stalactites, and natural cavern walls. A cold sweat builds up around my chin and on the back of my neck. The charcoal filters of the mask start to reek with contamination just as the miasma thins and Broken sees a door. It's massive, she describes, a nine-by-five-foot slab of iron once engraved but now rough with rusts over the whole of its surface. She can't find a lock or mechanism of any kind, just a single ring rusted flush onto the door face. Luckily for us, someone's left it ajar just wide enough that my fingers fit through the crack. So I brace a foot on the wall and pull with all my might. The hinges scream as rust crumbles. The door swings a few inches and we wedge our bodies the rest of the way through, turn and pull it shut again against the miasma and the yipping ghouls. It's clear, the girl gasps, ripping off her leather mask and sucking down the stagnant air, sweet as peaches after that disaster. I ditch mine as well and the two of us assess ourselves. No injuries, but our rations are fuzzier than moldy bread, eaten up by the hungry miasma. Don't worry, I tell Broken, pretending not to panic. We were cautious coming in, but once we find Maddox's secret, it'll be a day at most getting back outside. She's wise not to ask how I plan to get past the miasma and ghouls, nor do I give it more than that moment's thought. Instead, I distract her by asking about the look of the room while I check whether the girl's bandages are polluted. She says it's got a round roof and walls, a rotunda, and that there are doorways, a bunch of them, some blocked with stone and others open to rooms so large and dark the chem lamp's light can't reach. I ask if there's anything else, symbols, carvings, anything of that sort. The girl reviews the room with renewed purpose and finds what she's looking for. Engraved on the inside face of the slab iron door, under thinner rust than without, is the shape of a bell, a symbol of warding. And there's rust scraps piled in the middle of the floor, decayed links of chain. An iron door, an iron bell, and an iron chain? I grab the mace off my pack. Three is one too much to be a coincidence. There's a fairy trapped in here. Oh, truly, rasps a mocking voice from seemingly every direction. I order Broken to stay close to me. Nay, methinks not, the voice disagrees, bellowing a baleful wind, and all around is the sound of stone grinding. The girl shouts loud over the fairy tempest. The walls are changing places. It's true. I feel the sudden vacuum as the iron slab disappears, replaced with a hollow threshold. The voice gusts again, a stream of wind, moaning, Go, go to the tomb with ye grave robbers, as it tosses broken like a twig through the aperture. Then the walls change again. Now they're nothing but rock echoing the demented fairy's laughter. Foolish trespassers, looters and thieves so eager to be condemned. Where'd you take the girl? I scream. The fae laughs at my fury and I seethe. If only I could discern from where I think I could beat the answer from him. But I can't. So I'm aimlessly swinging my mace as I take the center of the room, hoping the chain fragments might grant me some advantage. And they do. 
At least I think so, because the fairy keeps his distance, jeering consistently but never gusting like he did with Broken. Fool, he repeats from the periphery. Thou hast become forever trapped by thy greed. Thou and the girl shall die down here. Your souls will join me in eternal service to the Shadowed King. You're the fool, I reply. Gone senile after too many centuries buried underground. The king is dead and gone. You're not serving anyone. The fairy shakes the chamber with his low, bellyful chuckle. So thought the last to passeth through my trap, and his soul is still buried here. Like thy shall be, and the girls, laid as chattel before shadowed King Ogier. Curse his name that he may never rise again. Heh heh heh, the fay cackles. I let him go on while I collect my thoughts. Fine then. If that's how it is, I'll just collapse the whole cavern. I show the fairy my striker and satchel of black flame. Explain in case he's not quick enough to follow. See this? You bastards can see in the dark, right? It's a high-yield explosive charge used by my people for blasting bedrock below the depths of the earth. If this goes off, I guarantee these tunnels won't even be a memory. It'll be me and you and the girl and whatever king you're serving down here. Forever. Waiting until the end of time. There's a long silence after, save for my pounding heart. I've never bluffed so hard in my life, and I've made some spectacular empty threats in my time as the Lord of Fear. But if this fairy's been trapped for as long as it seems, if he really believes the old king is down here somewhere, he may have even heard rumors of the Clan of the Antler and their black flame sorceries, exploding tunnels to the underworld and trafficking with spirits. So, I say, taking the initiative, are you going to tell me where you've hidden the girl, or are we going to take an eternal dirt nap? The fairy hawks and spits. Tis hogwash. Mortal men value their lives more than anything. I try the striker a few times, spark the satchel, and drop it amongst the rusted shards a few inches from my feet. What do Faye know about being human? I ask and answer, wheeling back my mace. Nothing. Suddenly there is a gust of wind, as I knew there would be, as the fairy rushes to expunge the flames. It comes from my left, sharp and howling, though not as loud as the fay curses in pain having trampled the rusted iron remains. At once the wind vanishes and the spirit manifests in flesh and blood. With all the might I can muster, I smash the mithril mace head against something solid. His collarbone, perhaps. There's a flash of fire like with the unwitting ghoul and an audible crack says the bone is broken. The wounded Fay collapses, and just as fast, I'm standing over him ready to strike again. He cries, Please, mercy! I whack him in the ribs. Where's the girl? There, through there, he groans. Of course, I can't see where he's pointing, so I bash him in the shin to discourage any tricks, then force him to escort me to where he shoved broken. He hobbles us to an aperture. I'm cautious. This is it? She's in here? This is the way... The corrupted Fay whimpers. I step inside and call her name, hear my voice echo the cavernous lengths while I listen for her reply. Any moment now. My feet carry me another step, then another, eager to be reunited when behind me stones scratch together. The way closes and I'm left alone with groaning laughter. This is the way to thy demise. I swear I'm going to kill the next fairy I find. For now, though, I've got no choice but to move onward and find broken. And so, clinging to the tunnel wall, I feel out each footfall for traps and jagged rocks. 
It's a monotonous process, but every time I get too confident, I stub my toes in some unexpected divot. Slowly it is then. I follow the winding tunnel with its ever-undulating slope and nonsensical switchbacks that somehow never seem to intersect, though I know they should. Only after an hour of wandering, disoriented and desperate, does it occur to me to question my perceptions. An illusion, I realize. Now, before I continue, I'd like to explain that I've never been a religious person. The clan of the Antler had long since forgotten its faith by the time I was made. And as far back as I can remember, medicine, chemistry, engineering, and transmogrification have been the most miraculous forces known to mankind. Though that's not to say that I'm an atheist. If fairies and hobs share this world with us, then why not the alchemist's great spirits and the church's wise patriarch? So when I sit down in meditation and recite the incantations Nostius taught me for transmuting proxilic spirit, it's not out of any sense of piety. I just want to know the truth so that I can find Broken and finish this quest. Thou, Amgine, reveal what hideth in the depths of shadowed Arcanum. Bring into light, thou Enantiodromia, what lieth beneath the bedlam of the squalor of the soul. I say the words and imagine the whole of darkness enlightened by a circle of flame, the transformative substance. My fingers trace the shape of the mithril macehead, the spirit Ouroboros. This gives the flame form, and from within its ring I see the outside world dissolve into illusion. My blind eyes open. There is no winding tunnel. Behind me the aperture remains closed with stone, and in front there is light, warm and nauseating like the rays of the sun. It draws me forward, this light, despite the turning in my stomach and the stinging of my skin until I'm kneeling over the source, this tiny thing. Like a rock, I think, and for a second I mistake it for the Philosopher's Stone. That is, until I take it in hand and am granted clairvoyance of what I seek. Broken sits still as silence. Her back against cold stone, her body shrouded in darkness, spear pointed out toward her shattered chem lamp, its luminescent substance in a thin, dim puddle on the catacomb floor. It was the first thing she did to crawl as far away from it as the walls would allow. For now she is alone and surrounded by shadows inhabited by every manner of monster imaginable. More than once she hears echoes like footfalls and breathing, and each time hulking, hairy ogres and hobgoblins, with their milky fangs and eyes, and yipping, slavering ghouls populate the dark corners of her mind. But this time there's no grant to save her, no lord of fear, nor lord of black flame. Her heart is racing. Cold sweat perfuses her bandages, and the damp, brackish linen begins to sting her skin. Instinctively, she reaches into her pocket for a cap of crown, pops it into her mouth and feels the pain melt away. Her fear dissolves as well, as does her sense of self, of time, and of place. Then come the visions. They start with the dim of the spilled chem lamp, its hue brightening from green to yellow till its brilliance colors every curve of the room. It's another rotunda, like a replica of the chamber from which she was thrown only without a rust-eaten chain or an iron door or a mine-tainted kobold. In their places are a collapsed tunnel passage, an aperture behind her blocked by stone, and a third opening into an unlit chamber too distant for the green-yellow chemlight to show. A distant howling finds its way through the rocks, sends ripples through the puddle, waves through the light, and the walls wrinkle like water from which a voice emerges, as does a slumped human corpse. 
A body, not just bones, but dead flesh. Preserved, though shriveled and bloodless, with a silvery spearhead embedded in its chest. Come hither, girl child, gently, it commands. Come hither, come, and be not afraid. Broken stands slowly holding her spear overhead, ready to throw the smooth shaft like it's a bolt of lightning. At least it feels like one in the numbed flesh of her hand, tingling like her feet with every step she creeps closer, wavering as if wading on the surface of a lake. She takes a break halfway across the rotunda, and from here can discern the body's facial features. Its thick wrinkles are white as ashwood, and its wiry beard has gone likewise pale. The same is true for its lengthy mane, but there, Broken notices a red stain rounding hair and forehead. At first she thinks it's blood, but then the colors connect with those fresh in her mind, and she realizes it's rust from an iron circlet. No other hints of clothing remain, though if they did, she'd suspect they'd be indigo silks spun by the hands of sylphs enslaved before the days of the great transmogrification. For this is no corpse which lays before her. It is the immortal body of old King Ogier. Then that means... Broken's attention flies back to the silvery spearhead. It means that that is Gerard the Giant Slayer's dragon lance. Tripping over a pile of bones that seem to emerge from nowhere, the girl rushes to see the lance head up close. Its guard and socket are identical to the piece Nastius made, and like the alchemist planned, a hewing blade the shape of a leaf of sheep's sorrel protrudes from the base. With all the faith and fearlessness of an excited child, she jams her spear point into the metal socket so that the mithril bites into the wood. Then, with every ounce of strength she pulls, but the blade stays put. So she places her foot on the old king's shoulder, wrenches again, and knocks herself over onto the pile of bones. Girl, the king's voice whispers to her, only the giant slayer can removeth this curse. Cast the spell. The spell. Broken gasps at her third revelation, that the skeleton mound on which she sits is actually the legendary hero himself, Gerard the Giant Slayer. But this isn't how the story ended, she thinks to herself, and forgets just as quickly. What does it matter if it ended differently if these really are the hero's bones piled at her feet? The spell, King Ogier reminds her. Then, as if his words were incantations themselves, the dark of reality sets in. The chamber returns to shadow. The luminescent puddle becomes nothing more than a trace of green, and inside Broken's mind so too does the world dim. The spell, she repeats after the king. But I don't have any of the materials, and besides, I've never done it right anyway. The girl's head hangs so low that her hat falls from her head. I'm sorry, she says, but I can't do it right. I just can't. Ogier shoots back a raspy, agitated whisper. Foolish child, can thou not feel the power of the eye set upon thee? All that need be is for thou to see the bones brought to motion in thine own mind's eye. Do this and speak the words, and the giant slayer will draweth the shaft on thy behalf. Really? Broken asks, afraid to believe too easily. Yet there's no question of veracity of the old king's claims. Now that he's made her conscious of the watching eye of Amjean, she can sense the magic gnawing on her soul, lighting its edges in a ring fire, setting it apart from the outer shadow. Then a thought occurs to her. What will happen if I remove the lance? She asks aloud. In the legend, 
All it took was a glancing blow from the mithril weapon to destroy Ogier, body, mind, and soul. But clearly that was wrong. The king was merely severed into fewer parts than she'd believed were destroyed. The material body before her, and a spiritual body somewhere else in the world. In the midst of her thoughts, the old king answers, What will happen, girl, is I will be free. My corpse will rejoin the earth and my soul go on to become one with the ethereal, and then perhaps I may face my final judgment at the table of the wise patriarch and his judges. May they hath mercy on me. Broken considers his words carefully and can't find any reason to disbelieve, especially when her incentives to trust are a legendary weapon and the hero who owns it. She picks up her hat, places it atop her matted head, and breathes a deep breath, steps back, recites the incantation. From bedlam, the spheres separate. From shadow, light. From light cometh shadow. One prima materia from infinite immaterial. Come, Ouroboros, dissolve the spheres. And as if in answer to the summons of the spirits, a light shines from within the adjacent chamber, a flash of white, then gold as phoenix flames, returning at last to blackness just as chaos fills the void of the hollowed soul of the pile of bones. Enantiodromia, broken invokes with the words of capture. Reconstitution! My clairvoyance ends more abruptly than I like, cutting me off before the results of the spell. Whether she succeeded or failed, there's no doubt she's in danger. If only the eye had shown me where. Perhaps it did, I think for a moment, recalling the flash of light toward the end of the ritual. I call out on a suspicion that maybe... Canty, she replies from an adjacent chamber, so close this entire time, I was just too blind and illusion-bound to see. But no sooner does she respond than does the sound of grinding stone signal that the walls are being shuffled again. The passage between us closes, and the one behind me reopens. My first thought is that I'm going to murder that fairy. And so, mace in one hand, the eye of Amgine in the other, I turn and storm back from whence I came, expecting the howl of wind or acrid laughter. Instead, all I hear is frightened yipping, then the screams of imminent slaughter and a sharp edge spilling blood. Rusty hinges cry out, and I ready myself at the sound of rapid padding as a ghoul races toward me. Arm cocked, I aim for where the hob should be, and wince as light floods into the chamber. I don't know what surprises me more that the hob I thought was looking for a fight instead decides to hide behind me, terrified, clutching at my cloak like to its mother's skirt. Or am I more shocked that I can see? Only ever in my dreams or under the power of crown had I glimpsed vision before this. But now, my blind troglodyte eyes are adjusting to the light, its yellow hue dimmed by smoke-stained panes of its parent lantern. Strange that I recognize what ought to be novel sights, though in my excitement I attribute it to the eye and don't give it another thought. I'm too busy trying to get a better look at the ghoul clinging behind me. It's got scorch marks at the end of its brown snout, and the deep scarlet of blood splattered over its fur. I hardly notice the trace stench of miasma emanating from its breath, so fascinated am I with its big, round, amber-brown eyes fixed over my shoulder, cat-slashed pupils, tiny, terrified. Not until I hear the gruff, familiar human voice do I turn back around and face the source of light. So, you made it after all. Maddock? 
I ask, staring at a squat man in rough clothes, his belly bulging out and forearms thick as hams gripping a sword and a lantern. He looks at me with squinty eyes and a thick, wrinkled face haired with gray wire. You've been gone a few days, so I got worried, he says. Something about his tone doesn't seem quite right, and I find myself unable to meet his eyes. There's something dark behind them, darker than black flame, so I stare at his balding crown and what remains of a gray ponytail. How did you catch up so fast? And how did you get past the ghouls, the miasma? And why didn't you warn us about that damned kobold? We'll talk about that later. Did you find the treasure yet? You mean the Eye of Amgene? So you have it? I hesitate. Take another look over Maddox's face. Maybe it's because I've never seen the man before, but there's something sinister about the way he's staring at me no differently than the ghoul hiding behind. And there's his story. And that sword soaked in blood, red down to his knuckles so that I can't see the color. What's it made of, I wonder, that it could kill all those ghouls? And what is he made of that he could do it as if it were nothing, like he's done this before? Something's not right. No, I lie. Broken has it. But the fairy split us up and trapped me in an illusion. I managed to escape, but I'm worried about the girl. We need to find her. Aye, agrees Maddock. Mortal men can't withstand the vision granted by the eye. Drives them mad. Go on, we best hurry. It'll be faster if you lead, he says, raising his sword above his head and bringing the blade down in a death stroke from my neck. Only by the grace of fear and instinct do I bat the blow aside, to Maddox's surprise and mine as well. He must have thought I couldn't see his treachery for me to actually be able to react to his lazy swipe. Next time, I won't be so lucky. For now, he knows. Lying trog, you have the eye! He cocks his sword arm and I try to run, but the ghoul clinging to my waist weighs me down. This is it. I'm dead, I think, my face turned away and my mace flailing, helpless against real malevolent intent. Then something whirs inches from my ear. I hear a wet, heavy thud, and when I look, I see a spear buried in Maddox's chest. The man staggers, shocked, watching the blood soak into his shirt. Broken. I know, even before I turn, that it was her to my rescue. And I'm half right, I discover, as the ghoul and I rush over to the open aperture where the girl stands in command of Gerard the Giant Slayer. Or the animated bones of Gerard the Giant Slayer. Or someone we believe to be the Giant Slayer. It's impossible to know if these are really his bones preserved by a curse. But sometimes things are best taken for granted. Some things, but never her. I fall to my knees, crying like an overgrown milk drinker, squeezing the girl to my chest and babbling my relief that she's safe. I'm fine, she says, sniffs, then replies, you smell like a dog. I step back and point to the hob. It's that guy's fault. He keeps hanging on to me. The ghoul yips and creeps behind Broken and Gerard, his big amber eyes yet wary of the skewered Maddock. He's still alive, apparently though staggering heavily, each joint operating separately like a puppet's. The effect exaggerated in the menacing flicker emanating from the cracked glass lantern dropped onto the floor. His sword arm hangs paralyzed high over his head while his spare hand jerks at the spear in his chest. Are you seeing this? I mutter, incredulous. Yes, she starts, then, wait, did you say see? I grip the eye of Amgene between my teeth to free my hands, drop my mace and reach into my pockets to retrieve the striker and another satchel of black flame. Then I turn my eyeful grin to Broken, 
My first sight of her wrapped in bloody bandages, ropes of brown hair jutting from beneath her witch's hat, eyes the color of the sky alive and watching me as I ignite the satchel, turn my smile to Maddock, who's nearly extracted the lance. I yell through my mouthful, Broken, hold him, like the ogre and Grant! Go! she commands, and Gerard leaps a dozen feet and grabs the spear shaft. Thief! hisses Maddock, foaming in rage, his face twisted as becomes his voice, as if there's somebody else in there, raving. The eye is mine, filthy troglodyte. The eye belongs to me. It... The rest is screaming as he's hit with an explosion of black flame, blue and transparent in the lantern light, but that's all right. The qualities of a thing don't always match its name. We don't wait to watch him burn. We're too tired, hot, and hungry, and it's an entire day's march to escape the mining tunnels plus the catacombs that run under the Hellgate's mountains. It's faster than when we came in, but that's still a long walk on an empty stomach, so we pass the time wondering what will become of Maddox's wine tap, how we're going to explain this to Constable Grant, and what to do with our hoard of new treasures, Gerard and his dragon lance, King Ogier's sword, and the Eye of Amgene. I guess we'll just have to scramble the unborn ourselves, says Broken when finally we exit the crypt just north of the northern forest edge. Then she asks, what about this guy? She means the ghoul who nearly got me killed by clinging to my cloak. It's pitiable even for a hob, though that just makes the little monster more endearing to Broken, who looks at him then to me with these big pleading eyes shimmering blue in the sunrise. Can we keep him? Please, Conti? I sigh, hold out the glowing, iridescent eye of Amgene, and ask, how do I stop this thing working? Though I know that what one sees one can never unsee. A secret revealed to me by the eye, one of many secrets. Fine, we can keep him, but we need to give him a name. Chaka, we decide after a few hours' deliberation, just in time to introduce him to the vault. Together we slide open the ramshackle door and watch as the hob lopes tentatively across the threshold, his scorched nose sniffling. He turns and yips, then Broken and I smile and tell him, welcome home. <laughs>